I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. In our nation's capital, you took me out and we played pinball games on shiny old machines. You had your quarters rolled, the high score bells just kept on ringing, 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 ringing. I could feel the heat as we stepped out to the street. That is the music of Tara Lightfoot, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Tara Lightfoot. Tara Lightfoot is a Canadian singer, songwriter, and guitar player. She's from Waterdown, Ontario, which is a kind of rural community in northern Hamilton. After attending McMaster University, Tara played guitar and sang for the country folk outfit, The Dinner Bells. That's The Dinner Bells, two N's in dinner and an L-L-E-S in Bells. She put a record out with the Dinner Bells, but then decided she wanted to go solo. Her first album was the self-titled effort that came out in 2011. 2015's Every Time My Mind Runs Wild featured the Stills as her backing band. And in 2017, Tara put out two albums, the fantastic third studio record called New Mistakes and a live one called Live in Concert, which features her live in concert. No surprises there, and also no surprise, it's a scorching set. It's an incredible live document of what Tara does best. Thunderous, soulful stomp, ragged, rootsy glory, and rock and roll finesse, all played with heart and delivered with meaning. That's Tara Lightfoot for you. She does not skimp on feeling. As a singer, she's a mezzo-soprano. She's an accomplished guitar player. She's toured with everyone from Bruce Coburn, who's a good friend of hers, to Blue Rodeo. I sat down with Tara Lightfoot and had an absolutely delightful conversation. She is truly one of the greatest. She's funny. She's smart. She's thoughtful. And uh, early on in our conversation, she even confesses to being terrible at Kiss Pinball. And then I got all in a confessional mood myself, and I confessed for the first time to anybody – I thought I would do it on the air – that I've never seen the Blues Brothers. Yes, these are the things we covered in our conversation. And yes, it's true. I've never seen the Blues Brothers. But listen to the conversation. I explain it a little bit. And she explains her, uh, her aversion to kiss pinball. And we break it down. This is my conversation with Tara Lightfoot. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Uh, have you ever been to New Jersey? They have a pinball museum there. Yes. Um, have you been to that pinball museum? I, the have. Museum? I have actually. Yeah. It's, okay. Is it not the greatest place? It's, it's the greatest. It's, I love it there. So it's, it's the, it's unbelievable. It's so cool. Um, and I went there after I wrote the song, uh, like I went there before, but then I went again for like kind of a special trip after I wrote pinball and I played on the Elvira game and I racked up some serious points. <laughs> you know, you know, Elvira, like that silly eighties. Of course. Game. Yeah. Yeah, so that that game I'm really good at. The kiss game, 
not so good. Like Kiss the Band. Yeah. So. I am terrible at the Kiss game. I never was good at that, even as a kid. Um, yeah. Is there something to do with, like, is that a problem that's unique to us, or is it just really hard? It's really hard. I think that you have to... Yeah. yeah it, it's one of those things where I never was good at the Kiss one. Um, I'm trying to remember the one I was really good at, because there weren't many. Um, but the Kiss <laughs> one I always struck out on. I don't know why. It was, I thought it was evil after a while. Yeah, like we had it, um, the place that we were staying in Australia, we were staying with a friend of ours, and he has this like crazy house in Cronulla, which is near Sydney, like a little suburb, but he has this big giant house, and in the one room there's a pinball machine, it's the Kiss game, and when we got there we were all like, oh my god, we're staying here for a week, it's going to be amazing, we're going to get so good at this game, and nobody did, because we, it just was so <laughs> difficult, but no one wanted to play it. I I like the fact that in Australia you were like, hey, we're in Australia. Let's get good at that Kiss pinball game. Oh, well, (laughs) I suppose we're supposed to be thinking about the tour. But also we're like, well, it's, you know, it's an opportunity to better ourselves at at other things, you know? I know. It's like, (laughs) hey, there's Bondi Beach or there's that Kiss game. Uh, Let's do the Kiss game. Um, I... (laughs) My feeling was, <laughs> when I was a kid, the people that were good at the Kiss game, I didn't trust. I was like, those people are, they're, they must be bad. Or robots. Or robots. Bad, right. bad robots. Actually, you know what? Our bass player, Maury, was good at it, and that's when I started hating him. But, <laughs> See? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. It'll put, listen, it'll, no, put, I... <laughs> it'll, it'll put you off anyone. If you, exactly. <laughs> Even if it's like, yeah. you know, someone you love deeply, if they're good at the Kiss game, you're going to hate them instantly. Yeah, like I think, you know, it, I don't want to say it, but it may have caused a rift in the band. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, here, you can solve a riddle for me. What makes somebody good at pinball? Like, how do you, how are you good at some of the games and not at the others? Like, what are you applying? Well, I think one of the coolest things about pinball is that sometimes it's about patience and it's about taking your time for a minute. Um, you know, when you can kind of stop the ball on the, on the flipper for a minute and, and kind of gather your thoughts and think, what am I going to do? That to me, um, is what really helped me progress at different games because it was like, you have to just stop and stop looking at all the lights and stop, you know, freaking out about the score and just figure out what are you going for? And, that made that made sense to me. I don't know. But isn't that also a really great lesson for life? I think it kind of is. Like, <laughs> um, I saw I saw somebody do it. I was sitting with somebody. It was like a bar or something. Not the time that I wrote pinball, but another time. And he did this thing where he stopped in the flipper for a while and thought, like, just was doing nothing, and then would like make a really big move. Um, and I thought that was really cool. So I think it is. It's a metaphor for life. Pinball. It's comforting. It's nostalgic. It's teaching us. Like, what's why is it? Why are there not more pinball games? I know. I'm glad that pinball is just still around, at least. I and I'm glad you wrote a song that that references pinball mm-hmm. because you know there's a legacy of, of of you know pinball in rock and roll. Did you did you think about that when you were writing the song? It's part of that sort of tapestry of rock and roll songs that evoke pinball. Totally, and I think I think for me being a woman. You know, of course, there's the archetype of, like, the pinball wizard and it being a guy. And so Pinball King, I was kind of like, maybe it's the grown-up pinball wizard. Right. Could be. 
it's, it's, I don't know. I was kind of, you know, uh, I wasn't trying to borrow too much, but I did, I did, uh, I certainly paid attention to that. I mean, it's your, it's our history. And so many musicians are into pinball. Like so many rich musicians have pinball machines. That's what I want to do. If I get rich from this, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy the Silverball Museum. You heard it here first. <laughs> do you think that Gene Simmons has the kiss game in his, in his house? Oh my God. He probably has four in his bedroom. Are you kidding? <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. He totally does. Yeah. He, he's one of those guys. I think that, that his likeness is all over his house. Yeah, we actually have a Gene Simmons mask in our van. I guess a 1970s, like a rubber, like just like a Halloween mask. And we, uh, yeah, we often wear it for comic relief on the road. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of weird, but Gene Simmons, he's an influence for sure. Are you you a Kiss fan? I think so. I mean, the, the guys in the band have taught me a little more about it. Um... You know, I was like Detroit Rock City, that kind of thing. Didn't know too much about them, but I, I like what they've done for rock and roll and how they brought it to the stadiums. I think that's cool. You know, I always resisted them. I'm not sure it's because I was terrible at their pinball game, but I always resisted Kiss. I always tried to uh, to I don't know what it was about them, but they never they never hit me. And I and I think I always thought of them as sort of like enemies because I my beginning with them was the pinball thing. Yeah, well, yeah. There's there's that um you hating the game which of course influences the band and that but they have one song that kind of drives me crazy it's pretty misogynistic um i forget what it's called but the guys were playing it for me in the van and i was like this is kiss this is not cool um and i remember i posted it on instagram and people were like so angry messaging me being like don't demonize kiss they're the best so i'm like they're singing about women in a way that isn't isn't cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I, a lot of their work yeah. does that. <laughs> I know. But I was kind of, I was like, this is, this is like Spinal Tap. Like, that's what they were, that's what they were going for. I didn't realize that there was a real band that was doing like a real version of Big Bottom, you know? That's exactly. <laughs> but you know, if you reverse engineer, like if you go back and you listen to like Motley Crue's Girls, 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 it's pretty offensive. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't know. There's modern day songs that are offensive too. I suppose mostly country music. I don't know. Maybe hip hop. I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I was just like really surprised. I was like, this is the seventies and you're literally saying this stuff that, and women are going to the shows and they're loving it. I mean, Gene Simmons never had a hard time with women, did he? He did not. No. (laughs) By, by, (laughs) By his own admission, he's been keeping count. Oh, yeah. Is that a thing? That's, well, with him it is. It's not, it's not a thing with me because uh, it's, it's been – oh been God. Yeah, but it's, but it's a uh, – apparently with him he needs a, a calculator and a, uh, a, a medical test of some kind because apparently he's been around. Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, I can say for sure I'm not going to be playing that kiss game ever again. <laughs> it makes you think I'm going to wash my hands after I'm done – with the kiss pinball game. Yeah, everyone should. That's what I'm learning today. Thank <laughs> you for teaching me. I am such a fan of your music. And I I wonder, you know, one thing about you that I love is that your sound is is so big and strong and and there's such power in your music. And I wonder 
how do you arrive at at that sound? Um, because I always think like, you know, for example, I've had friends in bands and they start strumming acoustic guitars in dorm rooms. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm sure that that is like, you know, where a lot of that stuff starts. Uh, bedrooms, dorm rooms, mm-hmm. wherever. Uh, your sound is so, so fully formed and so rich and um, and sexy and strong. And, and I love it. And I also find it really inspiring. Um, and so my question to you is, how did you arrive at at that sound? Or do you even know the answer to that question? I mean, it's such a hard question to answer, but was that always the yeah. vision to arrive where you, where you ended up? Well, number one, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. And two, I think that it is a complicated answer because it's, it's about time and it's about um, support. And it's, it's basically spanning my whole life. You know, I started playing uh, music when I was five with my grandmother who was an amazing musician, like a great piano player. Um, and then I was taught by my aunt on the other side, who was a guitar player. And so those are both really strong female figures that I was brought up with who were doing music for a living, and that was normalized to me. And they were strong and they were powerful. And, of course, there's men in my family that are strong and powerful too, but um, I think as a kid I absorbed a lot of that, and I, I thought it was normal. Um, so then when I kind of started doing my own thing, I did sing in my bedroom and I was very quiet and very shy (laughs) as like a teenager, you know? Um, and then as time wore on, I, I started meeting people, uh, in bands and, and playing with them. And I started singing a little, and then I joined a country band and that was really the turning point for me where it was a group of guys also very supportive um, and they basically would say, okay, we're going to cover this, uh, Hank Williams tune. You do the high harmony. And I'm, I'm going like, what? I, I can't sing that high. And then they just kind of said, yeah, you can, you can do it. And they gave me that like confidence and push. Um, and there was, a a very real kind of cushion. If it didn't go well, they wouldn't, you know, there was no consequence. So, it's about support and it's about the, the passing of time, I think, to answer simply. <laughs> how did how did they know and and you didn't? I, I love that story, but I love that they knew yeah. that you had it in you. And and how why is it that they knew and, and you didn't know you could go that high? Man. Yeah, that is an that is an answer I do not have. Because I feel like when you ask me about my vision, I don't know I mean, I don't really have one, you know? I I always um, my songs come to me just based on what's going on around me and my experiences. So, and they've always been that way. So it's always just been kind of a, a snapshot of where I am. Just, you know, pictures of each year, each person or, um, so I never, I never really knew where I was going and I still don't, which is maybe why it's still fun. I don't know. It's interesting to me. I, I heard an interview with Ron Sexsmith years ago and he was saying mm-hmm. that, you know, in his head, his songs don't sound sad at all. But he said people tell him how sad his songs are. He's like, he's always surprised to hear that people that people hear them that way. And I always wonder how yeah. you hear your songs uh, versus how people respond to them. Is that's always such a different moment? 
Yeah, okay, so Ron stole the words out of my mouth because that happens to me too. I'll show a new song to one of my friends and they'll go, it's so melancholy and beautiful. And I'll go, uh, it's like a country song. It's fun. Hello. <laughs> nobody, nobody except me thinks that. Um, but I guess that, you know, like, I don't know. Ron is like a happy and funny guy. Like, he's so hilarious. But his music is so emotional. So maybe there's like some undercurrents that we don't know about when we write the songs, you know? Um, and people might know us better than we know ourselves. Which is really interesting in, other, in terms of like what people see. Uh, and, and also the idea that you, on stage, you're just so loose. And I've seen you play live before, and, and I, love, I, I love how you're a very captivating performer. Um, but then to hear oh, you say you. that, you know, in, in, oh yes, and, and in, in real life that you're maybe a little bit shy. It's interesting that sort of, um, you know, like with Ron Sexsmith, he's hilarious, but, uh, but his songs are very you know, emotional and, and painful and, and, and moving. Um, so there's that kind of dichotomy. Yeah. I think that's like, that's a really hard thing for me. And I'm sure for a lot of people to show on stage, like, because it's always, it's always about the show. I'm like, if you're going to see like uh, Ray LaMontagne or something, I feel like his song, I don't know many of his songs, but I feel like they're very, like it's usually just him and it's pretty quiet and, you know, beautiful, and it's a listening room. Whereas with me, I'm trying to do these big rock songs or like these big blues numbers, or, or basically verging on punk, where we're playing really fast and crazy things. And then I'm going, okay, I'm going to take it down, and I'm going to put my capo on and play acoustic for a minute. And that's that's what I'm struggling with right now is is finding a way to make that dichotomy work on the stage. And I think it does, but it's it's a real thing for everybody, I think. Are the are the slower numbers or the or the more intimate numbers? Are those because they're closer to maybe that shy part of you, and it almost feels like you're revealing a lot more in those numbers? They're more intimate, more mm -hmm. naked. Yeah, and I mean, like somebody when I put out my last record, someone said, uh, I think it was an American person that was like, "This is so Canadian. It's just like what Neil Young would do because Neil Young puts rock songs." next to tiny acoustic songs all the time. And he's not trying to do one thing. He just puts out a collection of songs. And I think um, that's kind of the ethic that I went with, too. I didn't go by any kind of rule. You know, this is the concept we're doing, or this is the sound we're going for. Like, every time I put out a record, the producer, which is usually Gus Van Gogh, is usually like, okay, how are we going to make this work in terms of the track listing? Because... You have a blues song, you have a country song, you have a rock song, you have a pop song, and you have a folk song. And like a, I don't know, a soul song? Yeah, there's too many songs is the point. <laughs> too many types of songs for me. I can't even list them. I don't even know what they are. <laughs> I love that, it, that an American uh, made that a Canadian thing. You know Canadians, they're always putting a big rock song next to a folk song. Yeah, and I was like, it's just... Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, they only reference Neil Young. Right. Like, What's the only Canadian that you guys know? Joni Mitchell. Anyway, it was great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love how an American guy said an American, you know, like Neil Young and, and Dan Aykroyd. Who else did that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the... I think Dan Aykroyd's playing music. He is. Is that true? Uh, I've heard that. Yeah. And he's actually, obviously, he's a. He's a... <laughs> I'm sure you were. You're like, he is. <laughs> 
Yes. No, he is for sure. Yeah. Hang on. Let me let me just let me just check with my people. They're saying yes. He is. <laughs> oh my gosh! I heard I heard a crazy story. Um, he put out this uh, skull vodka. Is that a thing? Yes. Yes. Did you hear about this? Oh yeah. And I think he he did like a tour, where he his band would go and play, and they would be like promoting this skull vodka. I would have loved to be at one of those shows. I'm told that he's crushing it with the skull vodka. He's making a ton of money on that too. And good for him. Like he's a ghostbuster. He is a ghostbuster, a great <laughs> harmonica player, and uh, and a and a pretty good singer actually. I I think he's a great he's a great performer. Um, I, I like and I bet he's really good at that kiss pinball game too. Okay, I actually have to tell you this. I'm realizing something. I said he's a ghostbuster before. He's a blues brother. Yeah. Because I had never seen the Blues Brothers until this year. Is that right? Is that a? Is that a? Have you seen it? Is okay. It, is this like a rite of passage for everyone? Well, here's is the thing. Let, let me let me tell you something. I'm going to say this publicly. I've never said this to anybody, even even in my life and my friends. Right? I I'm 47 years old. I've never seen the Blues Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> okay. I'm so happy right now because yeah. I was getting made fun of so hard for my band, um, specifically that Kiss Kiss loving bass player, and and so I watched it and I was like, oh, it's it's really cool, and you know Carrie Fisher's in it too, so you should watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, the moral of the story. There's yes. I, now I have seen bits of it, at, you know, late at night flipping through channels, or I've I've you know, I've, and I'm of course aware of them, you know, from SNL, and I've seen them play. Uh, like clips of them playing live and they're fun. I've never actually seen the movie, which is it. It feels good to finally admit that. Yeah. Well, now you can you can remedy it. It's just a lot of them playing Whiplash, and <laughs> there oh, there's a lot of amazing musicians uh, featured in the whole thing, which is why it's cool. Donald Duck Dunn is in it, the bass player. It's just it's kind of it's kind of awesome. I mean, yeah, I think you'll like it. Well, that's the thing. And, and now we've embarrassed you on, on your podcast. I so know. It's, ter- <laughs> it's terrible. So we know we've learned more about me here. I'm bad at the Kiss game. I've never seen the Blues Brothers, and I have no friends. You're <laughs> 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 so funny. I, oh, my God. You know, it's funny you mentioned punk rock, because I was going to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was definitely going to say, you must have listened to some punk rock, because I can hear... Um, some of that in your music. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Is that true? Yeah, it is. I mean, like, I had this weird storied upbringing that I didn't realize. I did a longer interview with a guy about, I don't know, it was like a month ago, but he was really grilling me about my upbringing. And I had kind of blocked some of it out, like from high school and stuff. But I, what I was doing in high school was playing in the jazz band. I was playing bass in the jazz band. So I was listening to jazz, and then I was also, like, listening to punk music and listening to, like, Weezer and then listening to Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles all at the same time. So, but, there, yeah, there was definitely, you know, like, my grade 8, eight teacher loved the Ramones and the Beatles. So both those things were kind of brought to me at the same time. Um, but, yeah, yeah, the punk thing, for sure. And I think maybe it's going to come out more now especially because you're mentioning it to me i think i'm gonna write a punk song today <laughs> i want you to do a punk record <laughs> i want you to do a, <laughs> I, a whole record yeah and it would be so simple like that's the cool that's the ethic of punk that i like is that it's simple and that it's authentic you know like 
nobody's trying to do anything fancy. They're just they're just making music and it's it's infectious. And it is pop at its core too, you know? I think I think that's what's really cool about punk. And and there's just no um there's no inhibitions and no one cares and it's great. I love that part of it. I also like that you, with a punk song, you get in and you get out. It's it's quick and it's efficient. Yeah. And also the choruses are sing-along. Like, they're always sing-along kind of choruses. I love those. Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, you know, the Ramones and the Beatles, from in terms of, like, foundationally, there's a lot that's very similar mm-hmm. in, in that way. Oh, totally. And also The Clash. I was listening to The Clash a lot. I still have my dad's tape. Um, of London Calling. I totally stole that from him. So, like, my biological father would pick me up on the weekends, and he lived two hours away, so we'd have a long highway drive, and we'd listen to the Rolling Stones and the Clash London Calling, and I just totally stole his tape, and I still have it. That's a really, that's kind of a, a sweet memory, though. Um, what, a, what a cool vision. It's, like, it's almost like the opening to, like, an indie movie of, like, you know, a long drive listening to the Rolling Stones and the Clash on cassette. Yeah. It was cool. I mean, it was like an interesting way. I, I think it, in a way, it prepared me for touring because I was always, um, I was always on the road because I had such a big family. Like I had my mom and my stepdad that I lived with, and then my biological dad, and then my biological grandparents who lived four hours away, and I was always going to see them as like, you know, five, six, seven, eight year olds. So I was totally used to the car. Which is why now, when I get in the van, I'm like, no problem. 14-hour drive, got it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. But definitely, I mean, I'm so glad. Because my parents uh, did not listen to music. And so my dad being able to show me that stuff was super important. Whenever I would go and visit him. So in your house growing up, there wasn't music? There was no music. There was piano tapes that I was supposed to learn, or piano CDs. Um, cause I've learned the Suzuki method and you have to learn by ear. And that's the only thing. Like my dad put on Stevie Ray Vaughan when he vacuumed, which was like never. So <laughs> it was, yeah, it was like a silent, it wasn't silent. There was just no music. I don't know how to explain. And I didn't realize that again until I started doing music and being interviewed and people would ask me like, so what are your influences and what did you listen to when you were a kid? And I would go, uh... I don't know, nothing. <laughs> and it's true. It's <laughs> weird. But I mean, in a way, it, it opened up the door for me to to experience so much more and, and to be a satellite listener to everything else that was going on around me with my friends' parents or with other members of my family or with my friends, you know? So. But I also wonder, like, if you grew up in a house where your parents were playing music all the time, it also might have made you become an accountant. It might have made you go the other way. Oh, I know. Or like a weird scientist. Right. Yeah. I've all, that's kind of my nightmare. Like, I have nightmares about, like, speakers and, you know, being a scientist and being in a laboratory. Well, that would be not my favorite profession. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, whatever your parents do, you ultimately don't want to do. So maybe oh. the silent I mean, house may have been a may have been a uh, a catalyst for wanting some noise. Yeah, I mean, like they, I played piano. I took piano lessons, so, and then I started playing guitar, and that was totally cool. But there was just no, you know, I was the only one who listened to music. I used to bring my ghetto blaster everywhere in the house and just turn it on as soon as I got, you know, my own little stereo setup. 
So, yeah, kind of weird. I don't know. What did you listen to? I listened to my parents screaming. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no. I, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally joking. My, my mom was a therapist, so there was a lot of talking. Um, oh my god. The, you know, I listened to. You know, growing up in the Bay Area in in the '80s, so I started listening to like mm-hmm. you know hard rock kind of stuff. But then I started I started listening to the Police and Elvis Costello when I was in fifth grade, and, oh! and that was it. I love Elvis Costello. I know he's the greatest, and, and Back I, in the detective. Oh, the best! So those are those are my yeah. guys, like Elvis Costello, the Police, and uh, and those are my gateways into like new wave and then punk rock, and uh, you know, and then the the rest is history. Dude, do you like the nerves? I love the nerves. I'm obsessed with, okay, the, also, with the nerves. So good. And I have to tell you about this. Um, I listened to it in high school. My high school boyfriend and I got this wicked comp. It's called DIY Pop Punk from 1974 to 1976. And it's like the greatest compilation of all time. And it's like a power pop thing. You're going to love it. Oh, okay, gonna, I'm going to look that up. After the podcast. And the, nerve, yeah. the nerves are on there. Yeah, telephone. And so that's where I first heard them. I think there's a Costello tune on there. There's there's just so much amazing like amazing kind of power pop. I think there's um there's Cheap Trick Southern Girls, which is kinda of fun. Uh that was one of my high school sing along. You know, Southern Girls, you know that song? Oh absolutely. Yeah. There's just a ton of like feel good hits. And and I can't order this C D or vinyl anywhere. You, like it's not listed anymore, so I'm gonna try and um, I'll try and send you what it's called. Yeah, DIY. please. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt that down. And you know, it's funny. It's yeah. really interesting you mentioned the nerves because over the summer, I got into the Plimsolls, which is which is you know Peter Case was was in the Nerves, and he then formed the Plimsolls. And okay. I always sort of wrote the Plimsolls off as kind of like a million miles away, catchy song, whatever. And I got this yeah. Plimsolls compilation, and I listened to them. And I would say, in my opinion, after having ignored them the way I ignored the Blues Brothers for years, uh, yeah. <laughs> that the Plimsolls might be one of the greatest American bands I've ever heard. I cannot believe how good mm-hmm. they are. So uh, I think I have to listen. check them out. You won't believe it. It's like this, honest to God, it knocked me out. I wasn't ready for them until I turned 47, but... The Plimsolls, uh, there's a compilation called The Plimsolls Plus, and it is a knockout. They kind of remind me of, like, Credence and the Beatles. No. Yeah. Yeah, you're good. I love Credence. And if you love the nerves, you, this is he's your guy because he, he's the singer, and it's just it's going to knock you out. It's really good stuff. I'm so excited about this. I know. I have, like, I have a band also that I, I kind of put away, like the Blues Brothers. I never listened to the Kinks. I didn't get into them. Interesting. Until a couple of years ago, I know. And then, and then it's kind of like we're kind of like the Kings in some way. Like when I started listening to them, in the way that is it Ray Davies that plays guitar? Yeah. Or he, he well, Dave Davies plays guitar and Ray sings and also plays guitar. Oh right. So, but like their their guitar kind of sensibility reminds me of mine in some ways, but I've never heard them before. You know. So it's like the, all these parallels. I feel like a lot of bands are doing that right now because music is going through a transition in some way. Like we're, we're kind of going back in time for those that are still playing guitar that have not moved on to electronic stuff. Um, and I think that there's a lack of knowledge about what happened before, you know, like the big star era. Yeah. Um, 
I think that we, we've kind of lost it. So, like, a lot of bands don't know that they sound like something. And I'm totally in that category, too. I didn't realize when people are like, oh, do you listen to the Kinks? And I go, no. Well, it sounds like that. So, interesting. I don't know. What are you hearing in, in the guitar playing that you recognize? I'm not a musician, so I, I don't totally know how to, how to articulate it, but what exactly are you hearing in the kinks that you hear and recognize or hear in yourself? Yeah, well, I think for me, it's like I always do, I usually follow the melody with my guitar. So whatever I'm singing, I'll play it too. And I think, especially on their tune, Victoria, uh, they, they do that. They go, da-na-na-na, and they're playing the whole time I think um, and yeah just generally like following along the melody and just to like kind of disregard the way they're kind of choppy and fun and yeah that, that's what I hear it's funny we, we are living in a really interesting time in the sense that like Alabama Shakes or St. Paul and the Broken Bones and a lot of these these bands are that are considered retro bands but um, mm. they're they're you know, coming to national consciousness or, or they're getting a global audience that maybe they wouldn't have had 10 years ago, which is so strange. Um, and I put your, your music in that category as well, where it's like you're fine. It's a really good time. It's a really good time for you to be playing music is what I was going to say, which is so stupid. But it, it's... Yeah, no, no, no. But you're to- I get what you're saying. <laughs> but I get it. I get it. You get it, right? Like, it's a really... It seems to me like it's the right... The timing is right uh, for people to be hearing you. It's, it's, you know, it's a really good moment in our sort of modern culture where people seem to be open to sounds that are considered retro, even though they're timeless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think an interesting thing that I've been realizing about myself and about my music is that I have never changed what I'm doing really, you know, or, or I haven't, I haven't compromised, uh, to follow what's going on with like trends and stuff. And I, I liken this to my hairstyle, which you will see has been the same <laughs> since <laughs> the dawning of time. I have a picture of me in grade three wearing like a wicked like leather tassel like country vest, um, like super cool and like a denim shirt. And like I have the longest, curliest hair. And then you look at me now and I'm like basically wearing a leather tassel vest and a denim shirt and I have the longest, <laughs> curliest hair. So... <laughs> I've never changed. And so I think that there's a lot of people like that too, that they're just making this music and they've always been making this music and, and it would be nice to be recognized, but I think we'll always make this music no matter what, you know, because it's what's, it's what is inspiring to us, you know? And it's, and and by the way, have you consciously kept the same hairstyle or is it you just realized that? Oh no, I've consciously kept it. I don't let anyone cut my hair. I just found a person in Toronto that I trust enough to cut it. Because I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of, a, what do you call it, OCD? I'm a little OCD about my hair, about somebody chopping it all. How do you establish trust with someone that you go, okay, I think they're going to do a good, they're gonna do a good job with my hair. I, they've, they've proven to me that they're, they can handle yeah. this. Well, actually, what had to happen, we have this awesome woman on our team. She's, like, sort of our publicist. And she's like, you need to get your hair cut. Like, you're going to play Massey Hall, and you should really, like, get something happening with us. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, and she, so she took me to the salon in Toronto, and I had coffee with the woman. That was all that we were doing was having coffee and talking. <laughs> and then I left. 
And then a couple days later, I came back and I let her cut my hair. But there was like a window of time where I could decide, no, I don't want to do this. But for me, I have to have coffee with the hairdresser and talk to them about their life and make sure they're cool. So there's like a what about you? Well, there's like a pre-interview to to cut your hair. You have to have a pre-interview and then a consultation, and then you'll think about. Uh, For me, I think that uh, people go, "Well, it's gray and it looks like it used to be curly at one point." Uh, It used to be. They go, "Yeah, well, that's still pretty curly." But they go, "Look, here's a hat. Just do that. That might be easier." No. No. I, you know, I started going gray when I was 16 and, uh, yeah, yeah. Like not, I mean, not, not terribly, just like, you know, a strand Mm -hmm. here and a strand there. And, uh, and by the time I was 30, it was pretty much, uh, you know, rapidly. So I'm 47 now and it's all almost, almost all, well, no, it's, it's, well, there's more, there's more salt than pepper at this point. Yeah, but that's cool. That's hot. I that's hope so. I don't know. I, I... It's, go- it's coming into trend. It's just like the music, man. Like, your hair is cool right now. Trust me. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I, get, <laughs> I, get, I get a lot of sir and do you need help carrying that out? No. <laughs> no. No, you don't. <laughs> terrible but look you you have the same hairstyle since high school i'm i'm wearing the same clothes since high school so you so we're both we're stuck in a moment yeah no mine's since grade three it's even it's even farther back (laughs) you're so funny (laughs) let me ask you this how when you're when you're writing songs how do you uh how do you challenge yourself or do you even think about it like that when you're when you're writing oh yeah totally i mean I think now, especially because we've been in this record, so we put out a record in October, and I'm just starting to let myself think about the next record now, um, like even thinking about, about writing songs for it, and part of what I've been doing at home is making myself play piano, so that's an instrument that I'm not a master of by any means, um, but it's really kind of... I think the important thing that everybody's kind of aware of is that you have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone if you can. Um, And the other big thing that I've been learning about is making sure that I'm giving each song attention when it comes to me. So if I get an idea, even if it's just a little piece, um, I'm very aware that I should take the time to sit with it and not, you know, not push it away or, or, not just, you know, push it to the back of my mind because you lose them. And and each one, I think, is an opportunity to learn. And that's, that's what I'm learning about is just continually kind of treating songwriting as a process that I'm getting better at over time. When you say you lose them, do you mean the songs kind of evaporate or you lose the, the thread? Uh, yeah, you lose the thread for sure. I mean, you can even lose the thread. That's such an interesting term. Where did you come up with that? I, I listen. It was just on the spot. I just, I just sort of pulled it out of the air. I don't know where I came up just, with it. This is amazing. But the thread, <laughs> yeah, that's totally a thing because you can, um, you can kind of like weave a song into existence, uh, with one line. You know, knowing one line and then it leads you to the next one and leads you to the next one, kind of like a thread. Um, but if say I come up with that line and I I record it on my iPhone while I'm driving, which is totally not okay, but it also <laughs> happens. <laughs> <laughs> say that happens then i can lo- i can lose that little thread or the the 
the presence of mind that I had when I sang it for the first time. And then I'll, I'll lose where I wanted to go with the song. And I think the biggest regret that I have as a songwriter is the things that I never wrote. So the things that I never sat down with that I lost because, you know, just because I wasn't paying attention or, or I didn't, I didn't sit with it for long enough, you know? That reminds me of like, if you have a dream and you're like, oh my God, that, that was such a real moment that I had in that dream. And then you wake up and it's, yeah. and it just starts to evaporate. Yeah. Yeah. I keep a dream journal actually. Do you do that? I do. I do do that. Yeah. It, it's so cool. Do you, are you into lucid dreaming? I, I've been looking into it. I'm not, yeah, I actually am really fascinated by it. Yeah. I was super into it when I was younger. Um, like when I was a teenager, I would write down every single dream, like every day when I woke up and by the end of, I think it was about eight or nine months that I did it. By the end of it, I was like levitating in my dreams, kind of really noticing. Um, one of the things you can do is like look at your hand in your dream and see how many fingers you have. Mm. And that kind of like brings you into the present and like makes you start lucid dreaming. So I started, I started learning about it and then I spent more time focusing on that than on what was actually going on. Like at school, like I'd be like, Oh, I think I'll go home and go to bed. Cause this is exciting. I'm lucid dreaming. Like you could do whatever you want. You know? <laughs> An artist with a dream life more active than the real life. That I yeah, think that I happens. Mean, I think it's a thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. I know, but I mean, the the dream journal is really what kind of gets you there because you become more aware of what your subconscious is doing while you're sleeping. And so, I'm excited. I'm I'm excited actually to kind of try it again, but I don't want to get carried away. Because last time I was like, yeah, I was sleeping too much. <laughs> I don't get to sleep that much anymore. We're too busy. But I think if you're if you're doing lucid dreaming, you sort of have to be very present for that for that uh, that kind of practice. So you have to be like jobless. And well, like, yeah, without, um, without aim. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Whether it's lucid dreaming or pinball, you really it, it needs ten thousand hours. Yeah, exactly. And like ten thousand hours that we're not going to put in, quite frankly, for some of those pinball games. <laughs> do you do you find that you are? Um, you know, like, like, for example, I was thinking about this with, you, with what you just said is when I was, a, you know, when I was listening to like R.E.M. in the in the mid 80s and then they in the 90s, they started changing a bit. I remember going, why can't they make 10 records in a row that sound like Murmur? Uh, you know, or mm-hmm. say you say you like an actor and you think like, why can't they just keep making the same movies? But when I when I started yeah. writing, because I'm a writer and I thought it's very easy for me to write the same book. 20 times in a row, but I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to challenge myself and change it up. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I, so in other words, like I know the things, there are certain things that you do as an artist that probably come really easy to you and you could probably just sort of not mail them in, but they come easier. And so I like the mm-hmm. idea that you are someone who wants to challenge yourself to, to change it up and, and to sort of maybe try a different approach. Are you very conscious of, of doing that? Oh, totally. I mean, one of the things that I'm working on right now, uh, since we've been off the road for a month or two months almost, which is the longest stint that we've had in three years. So I've actually been at home and I rented myself a cello. Whoa. To try and to try and learn cello. Well, because it's like, you know, I've always wanted to do it. Music is my profession now. 
and I have an opportunity to to bring another instrument and another texture, which I so love. Like, I love listening to cello. I think it's the most relaxing, one of the most relaxing instruments. And it's also a lot like the guitar. Um, so in that way, like, I think challenging yourself is super valuable. And I also think everyone should learn an instrument as an adult because it's so fulfilling. It, yeah. It's interesting to me that you, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think if I brought a cello home, I would set it up and I would look at it and I'd go, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> how are you getting started? Like, how do you get started with the cello? How do you approach that, that instrument and, and begin? Well, I started just, um, I started just by playing one of my own songs on it, like kind of just, uh, not using the bow properly. But then I had a teacher come over and I think he was kind of feeding me a little bit. He was like, yeah, your, your technique is really good for a beginner. And maybe he just wants me to come back for more lessons. But um, <laughs> I think because, you know, because like I'm a guitar player and we do solos and we do fast things with our fingers. So, you know, we, it's, kind of, it's kind of a little bit easier than it should be for most people if you don't have any background, I think. But the 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 way that your body has to be when you play the cello, it's all about like relaxation and kind of letting your body do the work. Like none of your muscles should really be working at all, even though it looks very kind of strenuous. So I'm just, I'm kind of obsessed. If I can be honest with you, that's my obsession right now is is learning the cello. And that's what I've been doing. And I go away on Tuesday and I kind of want to take it with us on tour. (laughs) you, (laughs) You already missed your cello. I know, I miss it already. Yeah. <laughs> Does it feel natural to you um, now that you've been sort of, you know, playing around with it? Does it does it feel natural? I mean, obviously, you know, play, holding a guitar probably feels incredibly natural, but approaching that instrument, you know, the cello and sort of picking up the bow, is it feeling more second nature now? Is it getting there? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, th- I think so for sure. And especially because anytime somebody comes over, I make them sit with it and try it. Well, I don't make them, but I'm usually like, do you want to play the cello? And everyone says yes, because it's so exciting. Um, maybe I need to get out more, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, everyone is so amped on it. And, but it, it feels natural to me because I'm able to teach other people how to sit with it and how to hold the bow and how your fingers are supposed to go. So, I mean, in a way it reminds me of like, I have my favorite guitar that I'm kind of neurotic about. Um, that is so comfortable to me. You could ask me to play anything on it and it would, you know, be no problem. And then there's this threat always when we, when we go places that, you know, what if, what if I have to play something else or what if somebody offers me a different guitar and I, it's not as comfortable. And I'm, I feel a little weird about it, but at the same time, like people have their instruments and each instrument has something for each person, I think too, like something to teach each each person like the same guitar from the same factory from the same year but it's just a different a different model or whatever um or the same model but like a different guitar they can speak differently which is so neat to me like each piece of wood is different it has different energy so there's a comfort factor that's very real with uh with instruments and you strike me in (laughs) I've known you for 46 minutes, but you strike me as a very mm-hmm. 
in all the time I've known you, I have to say, you're the most patient person. But you seem like someone who's very patient. You seem like someone who's willing, kind of like what you said about pinball, um, because even though we're, we're, we're joking around, there is something very important about applying patience to a discipline and not being impatient and not wanting something to feel natural when you haven't earned that moment yet, right? Um, do, you, yeah. do you find that you are a patient person? Yeah, I think like I think I'm growing more into that as I get older, I guess. And and also like being the boss of my band, which I never really like to think about, but um being the leader of a band is is a different job. Like I'm the music director. When we get together, it's the parts are up to me. You know what I mean? Um and so that's really taught me a lot about patience because I want to respect the musicians that are playing with me. And that means giving, giving a part time, you know, to breathe. If we're trying something new, like when we try a new arrangement, um, which we've been doing a lot of lately. So I think, yeah, I think I am patient and I think I'm, I'm working on it. I think everybody should, yeah, should be more patient, even in like the grocery store lineup. That would make the world so much better. <laughs> you think? That's a, that's a true test of one's patience right there. Um, yeah. But are you are you on the West Coast? Are you in San Francisco? I'm in San Francisco. Where are you? Yeah, I'm. A... Yeah, I've never been there. Like I... I can only imagine that people are so chill. They are. They are, and and they and they aren't. Um, it are it's changed a bit. It used to be a little more chill than it is now because there's so much money here now. Um, people, oh. you know, so people have gotten. You know, San Francisco was always sort of a refuge for. Uh, artists and and um, you know any kind of fringe group and and the you know the the mm-hmm. freaks we all felt safe and comfortable here but now it's sort of been taken over by you know sort of a lot of money and millennials and it's sort of losing a little bit of identity which is kind of a bummer. Yeah, no, that's that's happening in Hamilton too. That's where I live. Um, gentrification. It's a big. It's a big giant problem. It's a big giant condo. It, yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a big but gentrification. It's a big giant condo uh, in, in the middle of what should be an artistic community. Yeah. Like, in, or at the parking lot, you know, we have in Hamilton, it's kind of funny. We're supposed to be called the city of waterfalls because we have 125 waterfalls around the city, um, which is a lot like the waterfall capital of the world or something like that. However, we also have that many parking lots within like an eight block radius downtown because everybody just kept tearing down the old beautiful buildings to build parking lots. Mm. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Joni Mitchell wrote about it, I think. I was going to say, it's hard not to think about they paved paradise and, and put up a parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, but they did. They really did. Hamilton, yeah, the city itself is great. Um, but we're dealing with a lot of the same things that you are. I can't believe you've never been to San Francisco. That has to change. It's well, here's what I'm trying to, to sell my management on right now is a drive up the coast, uh, between South by and we're going to the Junos in March, March 3rd, March 26th or something. So between in March, I've asked to drive from Texas to, uh, up to Vancouver, which means stop in San Francisco. Yeah, you. I'm so, telling you, you you would crush it here. People would love you. It would be so fun. Yeah, my friend Bruce Coburn lives there too. 
Does Bruce Coburn live in San Francisco? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Wow. Yeah, I just toured with him. He, I, listen, there's a guy. Uh, I got into him. Someone sent me, when I was in high school, I was a DJ, and I got this compilation in 1987. Having never heard him Mm -hmm. before and having never seen the Blues Brothers, I got a Bruce Bruce Coburn compilation, and I could not stop listening. And I was like, how has this guy been a secret my whole life? I was only 17, but I I got into him then. He, that guy, is something else. Yeah. I know. I really love the tune, the tune that he didn't play very much, but that was my favorite. It's called Rainfall. And and all of his songs are, like, political, and they're about the environment, and they're also beautiful, which I think is such an accomplishment because, you know, like, people like me, I just write about, like, very micro situations between people, you know, and it's emotion, and it's, you know, it's just the simple things that happen between two faces or two people. But Bruce is writing about, like, the world and things that matter, you know? And I've always been so inspired by that, like, by his ability to make those things kind of sit right in front of your face and become a personal issue. And he's always been that way. He Like, out of the box, he was doing that. It wasn't like he developed it. He always knew who he was. Yeah. And he can also do the other thing, too. He can write that little emotional song. Like, I have his, um, his self-titled from 1970 or 1969. Maybe it's 1970. Um, and there's a really beautiful song called Together Alone. And it's, it's like the most beautiful love song. And, <laughs> like, with the coolest guitar line ever. He's, he, he's also super into, like, uh, Chad Atkins and, like, Mississippi John Hurt, like, blues also. And, like, playing the guitar melody while he sings it. And, yeah. He, he's been a really big influence on me, actually. Is he, is he a uh, sweet guy? He's the sweetest. Yeah, he's so sweet and so funny and so kind. And, like, I think what's really cool about people when they're nice is when they're so talented and they don't care. Like, it didn't matter to him how good he was at the guitar. He didn't see that part. He was just talking to me because I was his buddy. I like that. I think that uh, you and Bruce Coburn should play a show in San Francisco. Agreed. Yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> tell me tell me who you are listening to lately that you really admire. And, and when you hear something you admire, are you a competitive person? Do you go, ah, oh, man, I, that's... Uh, how, do you, how do you receive new music and who, who do you like? Oh man, that's so that's such a great question. I was actually talking about this with my friend yesterday. She makes um bracelets, like she makes jewelry for a living, and she was talking about how uh in the city that she lives, the bracelet makers, like all the women are like really catty and really like, Oh my god, she put her bracelets up on a pegboard. That's so <laughs> not cool or whatever. And they're they're like, you know, like shit talking this woman uh, for putting bracelets on a pegboard and and we were talking about it and we were like, yeah, man, like whoever is doing what you're doing, you just have to be aware that there's room for everybody because there always is like every, how many bands have there been throughout time? Countless. And how many are great? So many. And there's room for everybody. So I never get jealous because I'm just happy for my friends or happy for whoever they are. Um, you know, right now I'm listening to, let's see. Well, I got, the Kinks Greatest Hits for Christmas. 
so I've been listening to that. Um, that's old, though. I think I got a new John Prine record, which is also old. Junior Kimbrough, he's another favorite. And what else? I'm literally looking through my records right now. I got an old, an old Nina Simone record, Wild as the Wind. I like that. Oh, I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, she's amazing. She's like really, and she is one of the women that made it okay for me to have the voice that I have. Nina Simone. Like, oh, she was phenomenal. What a singular talent. Yeah, but she had this deep voice, and and I remember hearing it and going like, "Oh my god, she sounds like a man." And then later, somebody did a review of me, and they were like, "Same thing. Oh my god, Caroline said sounds like a man." So then I was like, "Well, that's cool because Nina Simone does too," you know. That's exactly. <laughs> um, we're like androgynous in some way because we have lower voices, but she, she, her confidence and also her piano playing, like, oh my God, she's amazing. I love her. And her, her presence, like on stage, you like, that is a woman who was comfortable being who she was. Like she was strong. Yeah. And like the faces that she would make, you know, I've, I've really loved watching her confidence and like, yeah, and I mean, she must have been supported very well, or or maybe not at all. I mean, that's usually what happens, right? Either you have, like, all this confidence, or you have none. Like, Billie Holiday's story is so heartbreaking. Ugh. Like, you know, like, addicted to heroin, and like, you know, like, I don't know, probably having, like, a hundred abortions or something, and then her mom, like, I don't know, there was so many things going on for her, and she would get up on stage and, like, rip it. But there was that like complete sadness you know that was that was around everything that she did but she still got up there somehow this is we okay here's what we've covered we've covered the kiss pinball game you've revealed the infighting in the bracelet community and (laughs) and the nerves we've covered we've covered it all tara we've done everything i know i'm (laughs) sorry i'm i'm always so off track no no (laughs) you're talking to the right person that's I live in the off track. Amazing. <laughs> this has been one of my favorite conversations with anyone ever. Oh, you're the best. I have loved talking to you. Thank you. And me to you as well. Get better at that kiss pinball game and uh, I'll work on it too. Okay. Amazing. I'm actually going back to Australia in March or something or April. And I'm staying at that same house for another week. So I'm going to work on this. Well, there you go. Isn't she great? I love Tara Lightfoot. Uh, By the way, if you were thinking she's related to Gordon Lightfoot because you were like, well, how many uh, musicians from Canada could have the last name Lightfoot and not be related? Well, she's not related to Gordon Lightfoot. So in answer to your question, that would be two. There's at least two Lightfoots that play music that are from Canada that are not related. Uh, I'm Alex Green. This has been Stereo Embers, the podcast. Hey, follow us on iTunes. We'd love it. We'd appreciate it. And you know what else we appreciate? You listening to Bombshell Radio. Want more information? Go to bombshellradio.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes as well. So Bombshell Radio, Stereo Embers, the podcast. I'm giving you some homework. But listen, thank you as always for listening to the program. And I will see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.